Hello, and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Eating local has been hailed as the answer for what ails our current food system by many over the past few years. And while some of us love knowing where our food comes from, including the farmer who grows it, what do we really know about local foods? Does science back up the idea that local food is more nutritious? Can local food improve the environment? And does the food taste any better? To answer these big foodie questions, Science in the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science invited a panel of experts to tell us all about the science of local food. The event was held as part of the River to River Festival. Robert LaValva, who is founder and president of the New Amsterdam Market, moderated a discussion that included Peter Hoffman, chef and owner of farm-to-table restaurants Back 40 and Back 40 West, Dr. Jennifer G. Phillips of the Bard Center for Environmental Policy, and Brian Halwell, editor of Edible East End and co-publisher of Edible Brooklyn and Edible Manhattan magazines. Over the course of their discussion, the quartet raised a lot of interesting questions of their own, including, what does being a locavore even mean? And is local really the best term to live by, or should we be thinking on a more regional scale? Now, I turn it over to our moderator, Robert LaValva. When I was invited to take part in this talk, The Science of Local Food, a few thoughts came to mind thinking of science and food systems. Uh, Clearly, we are living today and uh, depending on a food system that I think science has played a very important role in helping to create. It has taken the way that we used to grow food and made it really become a system that provides huge quantities of food and great diversity and variety of food that can land on our plate from anywhere in the world at a very affordable price. And in that way, this industrialized food system that we all live with has enabled us to lead the lives that we live today. At the same time, this food system that we now have has grown to an almost unimaginable scale, and it has had effects as well. It produces a tremendous amount of waste. It relies on a tremendous amount of cruelty to animals and to people. It pollutes the environment, and it's considered by many of us increasingly dangerous and also frightening as we think of things like genetically modified organisms. And many of us are concerned about these issues. And so in the same way that science has brought tremendous advances, it has also brought a lot of uncertainty and fear. And I think our role in society is to understand that every system needs to be questioned and needs to be understood. When I think about the meaning of local food and what is important in in a regional food system, I think specifically of New York City as a Many of you might have seen a couple of years ago on the subway cars, there were some public announcements that talked about how an average New Yorker consumes 25% of the energy of an average American, and that's for primarily for two reasons. One, that we don't drive as, as much, and two, that there's a great, greater efficiency in heating houses that are stacked on top of each other. And that's something to consider, and it does relate to local food because For many people question the uh, value of local food, but here in New York City, the more local food we consume, 
the more we preserve local farms, and the more we preserve local farms, the more we prevent local sprawl, and the more we prevent local sprawl, the more we prevent that tremendous waste of energy that happens when you have that kind of sprawl. So in many ways, New Yorkers can play a very important role in helping to stem that consumption of energy and release of emissions and so on. So in that one specific way, it's, it's very relevant to New Yorkers. Um, I'd like now to move on to the panel because the three panelists we have, Jennifer Phillips, Brian Howell, and Peter Hoffman, and we're all very grateful that they joined us tonight, are much, much more knowledgeable of these uh, issues that I just touched upon lightly through their own work. And so I will start with a question that will allow every uh, panelist to also talk a little bit more about themselves and what they do, and that is, what is it that draws you to local food? Why is this an important topic to you? And is there a particular story that changed your mind about local food? So we'll start at the end with Peter. Thanks, Robert. Um, you know, what's interesting, and I, I don't want to rock the boat too much here right off the bat, but um, I've been called a locavore. The term is applied to me. I shop a lot at uh, the farmer's market at, at uh, Union Square and other markets around the city, but um, I'm actually not a locavore. Um, and I don't think that, uh, in, in some ways, I don't think that local is the most important term for us to be looking at. It's very important shorthand for um, other things that we really care about. And one of those is about shortening the distance in the set of relationships between the people who are producing our food and the thinking and the decisions that they're making about that food production and us, the diners, the eaters, the end users. And in my restaurants, we have those relationships with many people. Some of them are local, some of them are not. And, and so it's, it's what we've lost. I mean, and we've lost many things. And your words about the industrialized food system and what some of the costs versus the benefits are was very apt. But we've lost the sense that the commodity food is being grown by people who aren't thinking about taste first and foremost. And, and if you like to eat, and who doesn't, then we want to buy products from people, raised by people who want to make something taste good. It just so happens that when in this economy, that when we buy local and we buy in small markets where maybe the person who raised the food is the person who's selling it to us, and so there's a direct face and a direct relationship between the, uh, the producer and the buyer, that relationship and sense of responsibility or shared values is leveraged and makes for a, a different product when you take that ingredient home and cook with it. So that's some of what's heaped on local um, and isn't necessarily about local. You know, I'm, I'm currently reading a book that I recommend. Uh, I'm reading Tomato Land by Barry Estabrook. And he sort of describes how the winter tomato, what we feel is uh, a required presence on uh, salads in so many places, being grown in Florida in an inhospitable environment for tomatoes um, requires, therefore, huge number of toxic pesticides, a massive infusion of uh, 
inorganic fertilizers um, and the transportation of it and for a product that doesn't taste like anything. I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? I mean, it doesn't, you don't end up with a good product. You could say, wow, you know, it's like that maybe the strawberry that comes from California, the Driscoll strawberry has some sweetness to it or something like that, but the, the tomato doesn't taste like anything and yet the cost is so high. And so that, that relationship, that part of the food economy then represents so many values that have nothing to do with what you and I care about. So what I love about having been the owner of two restaurants, and I actually don't have Savoy anymore, I closed it uh, in June a year ago, and I now have Back 40 and Back 40 West, but what I love about it is the, um, the journey, the process, both the personal learning process, but where I am in the economy of having the opportunity to buy food from people who care about what they're doing, um, who therefore in caring for the soil, caring for the, uh, the animals or the plants, and wanting to create depth of taste or health in the land that translates into depth of taste, and to be able to then share that with our diners and eat that food myself. That's um, what's been so wonderfully gratifying about my place in the work. And of course, to share that with people along the way and hopefully inspire others to do the same. Thank you. Well, Brian. Um, <clears throat> well, when I consider why, um, uh, what local food means to me or why I'm inspired to uh, seek out food uh, and drink from nearby, I mean, like any food choice, there's often many reasons. You think of why someone might be a vegetarian and there are ethical reasons, social reasons, aesthetic reasons, nutritional health reasons. From a work perspective, for me, local food is a gateway to environmental issues. A formative moment for me was hearing um, a lecture from the ecologist Paul Ehrlich where he said that agriculture was the single biggest way in which humans affect the planet. And that really stuck with me and I ultimately um, worked with an environmental group in Washington, D.C. and found that food was a very effective way to get people to think about environmental issues, whether it was the quality of our water and, and uh, pesticides leaching into it, or what's happening with the landscape, or much larger issues like climate change and energy use. From a more personal standpoint, like Peter said, you know, I like to eat. Who doesn't like to eat? And I like to cook. That's fine. But what I really like are those acts of everything before that, you know, from the growing of food to shopping and getting to interact with farmers and food producers in a way that you don't necessarily get in a conventional supermarket. Um, I grew up in New York City, but I don't live in New York City anymore. I live on Long Island, partly so that my family and I can have a garden. And so uh, squeezing some food production into my life is very important to me. And, and shopping at a farmer's market, shopping at a place like a, a venue like New Amsterdam market, being a little bit more involved in food and drink experiences on a daily basis are part of what's fulfilling for me on that level as well. And if I lived in New York, I imagine that I'd you know, sign up for as many community gardens as I could and you know, grow something on my porch or rooftop, or maybe I'd move to Queens where I could have a little bit of a larger space and grow something in my front yard. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm glad Peter said what he said about the local in and of itself doesn't necessarily signify all the things that we've come to attach to it. And I am mostly interested in, as Brian said, the sort of environmental impacts of food production. And local has come to be sort of a shorthand 
Originally, the guy who developed the term in England many years back was specifically talking about greenhouse gas emissions and, and that in a very general sense, we could shorten or reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from food production by consuming from products that were produced more close to home. But in fact, lots of people have done studies now, and the transport component of food production systems is only about 11 to 12 percent of total emissions. The bulk of the emissions are coming from things like nitrogen fertilizer application and nitrous oxide emissions from that, making the fertilizer and then oxide, nitrous oxide emissions after you apply it. Problems with soil erosion and, and depleting soil organic matter is calculated in there too. So there's, there's lots of ways in which, as everyone has said, food systems can have a very negative impact on the environment, but they don't have to. There's lots of ways that we can grow food that don't have a negative environmental impact. And the thing that's interesting to me is that one of the other elements that has become really important about local is this idea of shortening the chain of connection between the producer and the consumer. And the implication there is that if I can literally look that farmer in the eye when I buy my summer tomatoes, there's a trust that builds up. And even if I haven't asked that farmer, are you organic or how do you handle X, Y, and Z? What kind of fertilizer do you use? You know, do you have problems with X, Y, or Z uh, environmental impact on your farm? I, if I haven't asked those things, I am assuming that, oh, it's local, so it's going to be environmentally good, it's going to be ethically good, it's going to be all of these other good things that I want. And the bottom line is that it's not necessarily the case. We cannot assume that just because it's locally grown, it's going to have all of those other values that we want to associate with local. So. I'm a big proponent of not only asking, and in some cases you can interact with a farmer enough that you do trust them, and you know even if somebody isn't certified organic, you have a sense that you know that they're doing a really good job. But often, one of the problems comes up as we try to actually build the system bigger and bigger, there's a scale problem, and transport is a problem. I mean, you know, 17 million people in New York City need to eat, and if we were truly, if everybody ate local, that's a lot of food, a lot of transport, a lot of like trips to the farmer's market. I mean, they're, they're intermediaries that are going to have to develop in order to truly make this work. And if, but if we're going to do that, then it sort of starts to look like a conventional food system. So we need to think carefully about how we build that system. It can't all be me interacting with an individual farmer, especially if I live in New York City. I don't live in New York City anymore. I did for many, many years. And now I have a farm upstate, which is fabulous. But I'm very aware of the fact that if I want to market food to people in New York City, I need to hire a trucker, I need to use cold storage, I need to, you know, there's all this sort of infrastructure that doesn't exist anymore that needs to come back into play. And it also carries emissions and environmental impact with it. So it's sort of it going from the, the one acre veggie farmer down the road to a system that's going to feed everyone. I mean, my, my goal, my vision would be that everybody on the planet could eat good, healthy, ethically, environmentally sound food. But in order to scale the whole food system there, that's going to be hard. But we need to sort of move beyond the, this idea of local is the only way we can do that to thinking about what are the in impacts of all of the ways in which we can produce food. So, Always complicated. <laughs> well, in some ways, this question has already been addressed, but I think it would be worth uh, visiting nonetheless. For each of you, what is your definition of local? Even whether or not 
you are considering yourselves to be a locavore, but what would you define as local? And we'll start. I, I got to say, I, I actually wouldn't ask if it's local or not. Mm -hmm. I would ask, how was it produced? Was it, you know, is the person taking care of their soil? Uh, it's just local in and of itself is not the question I would ask. Mm -hmm. So, Brian? Yeah, I guess I would answer in a similar way. I mean, what's happened in this discussion of the benefits of eating local are that we kind of have to define it larger sometimes. And when you start thinking about regional food systems, you address um, not only many questions of availability and scale. I mean, New York does not have a large grain um, uh, production capacity right now, but Pennsylvania does, and the Finger Lakes do to some extent. So if you define local for New York City a little more broadly, all of a sudden you can start supplying local bakeries in a big way. If you just define it within 100 or 200 miles of New York City, there's no way to do that. So. Um, you know, it used to be that people talked about local as where you could drive in a day, you know, a day's drive to visit a farm. 150 miles was used by a few authors when they were sort of, you know, as a stunt trying to eat entirely locally for a year. But I think what's beginning to happen is, is it's uh, morphing into much more of a, you know, concept of regional food systems. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing that, that that's embedded in all of this is that when we think sometimes about local producers, that they're smaller scale, and we have direct relationships with them, and the farms may be more diverse. And one of the things that comes with a global food supply or a nationally transported food supply is that areas, you know, for better and for worse, I mean, you were just talking about the, the regional aspect of it, that, that then there's concentration on uh, what you do best, which can end up looking like monoculture. And that's a problem, right? It, the, the problem of monoculture is in some ways the antithesis of what we're talking about in terms of local. And whether that's that the entire Mississippi basin is growing mostly corn and the erosion issues uh, both in terms of topsoil and and pesticide runoff and uh, nitrogen fertilizer runoff into the river, into the Gulf, and what effect that has, or that nobody in the Midwest grows vegetables. I mean, there's lots of topsoil there, the weather's good, and they're not growing their own food anymore. So that their lives have been narrowed in such a way that they're on a rat race trying to get the highest yields of, of corn out of their land. And so that's also part of what we're talking about in terms of local, that is, is that people are making choices to diversify their production and that the region has diversification as well. Monocultures are all doomed to die, whatever they are producing. In, with that in mind, you nonetheless certainly Savoy and then Back 40 and now Back 40 West are, I would think, generally known as restaurants where people can eat locally. Where, when and how do you make those choices and for what reason to source locally? And well, in what instances? One of the rules of thumb for the chefs and folks buying product for the restaurant is if it's grown locally, then we buy it locally and we don't buy it out of season uh, of that item. But I mean, not to have sugar, lemons, olive oil, chocolate, coffee, 
um, you know, the, the list is long. And so you could come in and go, oh, my God, this guy's not a locavore. I never said I was a locavore anyway. But you come in and you go, well, what's going on here? It's just like, well, are you ridiculous? I mean, it's just like I love the idea of globalism, but that doesn't mean that we do it at the expense of the environment or we do it at the expense of local cultures being able to support themselves. If, you, if you've created environments so that people in Mexico are only growing harico string beans and they're not growing food anymore for themselves uh, on the land that's most arable, we've done something pretty twisted in that economy. I think, uh, Brian, in a similar way, given that you edit or publish really three journals having to do with local food. At the same time when it came, I think, and I, following all of, all of your work, when it came to Manhattan, there was definitely a, a departure a little bit in that edibles kind of adherence to what's being done or what's being grown locally, obviously, of course, because Manhattan it doesn't have much farmland, although it seems to be more and more these days. but. What, what informed your decision on what to cover in Edible Manhattan as it relates to this debate about local and not local? Well, I mean, I think you have to acknowledge that, uh, especially in a place like New York City, you know, a cosmopolitan, you know, global metropolis, uh, that a certain amount of food importing and food trade uh, is going to be very natural, has gone on for a really long time. I mean, you know well the history of the Fulton Fish Market. And to this day, most of the seafood is coming from the region, but plenty of seafood's coming from the other side of the planet. Probably the other way around, actually. <laughs> so, you know, um, my, my mission um, as an editor of Edible East End and the publisher of Edible Brooklyn and Manhattan is to get people to know and crave and love the food producers in their area. That's a mission that I share with edible magazine publishers all over the country. There's 70 edible magazines coast to coast. I'm involved with three in this region. There's nine in New York State. So wherever they exist, they share that mission. And um, just because I'm trying to encourage New Yorkers to make food and drink experiences a bigger part of their lives, and that often means shopping at Green Market and uh, getting to know what's coming from your most immediate environment, doesn't mean that I want to discourage them from all the other exciting and very enjoyable and educational food and drink experiences that they might have. I mean, New York City is the largest wine market in the world, um, and it's primarily not New York-grown wine and primarily not, not domestic wine either. Yet, New York has become a really big market for New York wine. So by encouraging our readers to seek out local flavors, they can have a massive impact but there's always going to be room on the table, especially in a city like New York, for exotic flavors. You know, that said, I think, you know, one of the other interesting um, contrasts between the local food economy and the global food economy is we all think about global flavors now in a way that we didn't before. I mean, sushi is available in supermarkets in the smallest town in America, and not just in a place like New York City, where you can literally enjoy hundreds of different cuisines in, you know, a few square blocks. So. One way in which you think about eating local in Manhattan is cooking with global spices and global flavors, but using local in mm -hmm. ingredients. I think actually, just to follow up on both Brian and Peter said, one of the interesting aspects of, certainly when you live in New York City, you have access to a what tremendous variety of really wonderful foods from all over the world. And what always uh, struck me 
particularly thinking about something like wines, beers, cheeses, uh, cured meats, and so on, is that many, or if not all of those products emerged out of being extremely local uh, at, and at, from times when people really only could make do with what was local because we didn't have the transportation systems we have today and yet it forced, therefore forced them to make the best out of what they had and the seasons that they had and the products of their land. And in that way, I feel that the local food movement is and remains very exciting uh, from a cultural perspective in that what are the flavors and what are the foods of this part of the world? And I think that they're still yet emerging. I think we've seen it, certainly in my experience with cheeses. It's been, an, even in just the past 10 years, this great renaissance of cheeses that initially were maybe modeled after the traditional European cheeses, but now that our, our region's cheesemakers have, have um, come to really learn their craft and take advantage of, of the Northeast, which produces great grasslands and, and therefore great milk, and now they're they're making really unique and wonderful products that one day I'm sure and I hope I would walk into a cheese store in Rome or Paris and find some cheeses from Vermont or New York State and on their shelves and then those would be appreciated just as much as we would appreciate imported cheeses from from the old world and with one of the questions that we had prepared was in the same way we way we talk about terroir for wine it, what is there a taste of the region in our food, and in what ways have all of each of you found that, or how do you experience that personally? Where where do you feel that you can really experience the flavors of the Northeast and, and the things that we eat? Well, I'm not sure how I can answer that, but I, I raise lamb, mm -hmm. and lots of it, and uh, have sort of unique set of plants on my on my farm, and I I'm not sure if, I think my lamb tastes sort of unique, but I don't know if it's because of what they're eating on my farm. Um, they are get, I graze, I graze about 10 acres of apple orchard that I don't harvest, so they're eating apples at the end of the season, which is probably good for flavor as well. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things about the Hudson Valley, there's lots of, Hudson Valley, I'm associating with Hudson Valley, region is much bigger than that even, but um, because my farm is in the Hudson Valley, but the, there's many different soils and, uh, it's, I think the, the idea of terroir, in, even in a region as, as small as the Hudson Valley, it would be hard to say that there's a specific flavor there because it's all about the soils, and the soils are quite varied in the Hudson Valley. Mm -hmm. So that it may be more of a cultural thing. I don't know. Do you, do you agree? or do you Well, I mean, I'll speak from you know, the, the area I live in, Suffolk County, Long Island, where the soils don't vary that much, and there's a huge... Uh, weather and climate influence on the terroir. So, you know, we're completely surrounded by water, which means that we have very late cold springs and the season kind of gets going slowly. And then we have very long growing seasons. Even people will be harvesting tomatoes out of their garden into November and December. And what this means for the wine community out there, and Long Island's one of the largest uh, wine growing regions in New York now with about 50 wineries, and it's the largest European grape variety region in the state because it's warmer than upstate. Um, people talk about the maritime, uh, speak about it as a maritime or cold climate wine region, uh, which compares to Santa Barbara in California or what would be a cold climate wine region in Europe? Well, Burgundy, Burgundy um, yeah. Alsace, 
um, so the, the Loire. So the grapes ripen more slowly over a long season, uh, and in contrast to a Mediterranean climate like you know Italy or, or Napa Valley, um, they are not as high in alcohol content. They're more acidic as opposed to more sweet. And um, many connoisseurs would say there's a much more subtle flavor, and it goes uh, that that sort of maritime wine goes better with food because it doesn't overpower the food and. Many winemakers out where I am will, you know, argue, you know, that that, that is the terroir of our area, um, and I think it also affects the vegetables. Maybe not in flavor, but uh, importantly in terms of when they're harvested. I mean, our strawberries come in a little later than Hudson Valley strawberries. You know, for so for a chef like Peter or a chef out where I am, they <coughs> might buy strawberries from the Hudson Valley early in the summer and then, or you know, late spring, and then from Long Island later on. And again. We have this amazing abundance of fall crops on Long Island that you know it doesn't happen elsewhere in New York because it's gotten too cold. So, I guess I think of terroirs informing you know the seasons and the diet as well. Um, you know that that we eat out there, that you know that, that we enjoy out there. Peter, what about have you made any discoveries about the foods you're sourcing that, um, that you really love using in at the restaurant? Well, I, I, I think I'm with Jennifer a little bit uh, still, as in uh, um, outside of the world of wine, I think the jury's still out. We don't know enough. We haven't tasted enough. People haven't done the work long enough for us to see where is this the hand of man and where is this about the soil. Um, you know, I know who my favorite orchardists are in the Hudson Valley and why their apples are so great. I haven't been able to figure out whether they're just really good mm -hmm. um, or whether there's something going on there. I can't, I can't tell you that I can taste the difference between a Macintosh from one side of the Hudson or the other or the Finger Lakes versus the Hudson Valley. I, I, I'm, I'm not there yet if it's there for us to discern. And I, I mean, in that way, I really think it's very specific to wine. You know, there's a few other places, right? I mean, it's just like clearly we can taste place and difference in oysters and how they're raised and people, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Who wrote the book about the oysters and what? Rowan? No, Rowan Jacobson. Yes. Yeah, thank you. You know, Rowan has ri written about Meroir and, and, <laughs> and, and all of that. Um, but I, I just don't think that we know enough yet, or we've been practicing it long yeah. enough. Though they, they say that uh, livestock grazed on pasture near the ocean where you get this, the mineral the impact uh, mm -hmm. it has a big impact on taste of the meat right. if you're near the coast. But Absolutely. That's, I don't know if that's terrible. And there are also people who say that uh, Long Island tomatoes grown near the coast have a saltier mm -hmm. flavor, but then other people have argued it's the long growing season, mm -hmm. so they can mature and develop more flavor. <laughs> I mean, I, I, um, I think what you, the patterns you can see are are certain ingredients showing up at the same time, which is not really terroir, it's sort of de mm -hmm. defining a cuisine. Like, you know, it's very common in the better Long Island restaurants, you know, uh, expensive, inexpensive, just the ones that care more, to see a pasta dish with um, either clams and corn and tomatoes or lobster and corn and tomatoes. And those are all things that are, you know, harvested readily in that area, abundant for a big chunk of the year, so it just goes very well together. And I think it again comes around to the culture, I guess, of local food more so than terroir or even science in, in a way. With that, with that thought, though, since this is, a, is also a discussion about science, I think we've, we've um, 
it's been interesting to see the conversation evolve and, and that everyone is pretty much on the same page regarding that the word local is perhaps not enough to define what we're seeking. But in terms of, of the environment and especially when we're talking about climate change and the, these issues that come to mind when thinking about local food, what, what are what are the things that uh, that you consider, especially Jennifer, more important or most important in terms of the way food is produced that we could be could be or should be thinking about or learning more about? Well, I, I I'll echo something that Peter said earlier again about the issue of scale. Scale is one of the things that I've tried to sort of study in terms of how far you can push the sort of organic, um, sustainably grown uh, model to, and scale it up. And what, on a spatial scale, do, do, is there an impact of field size when you're looking at trying to maintain beneficial insects in the hedgerows and that sort of thing? You can't have a field that's 200 acres across with one crop in it because the beneficials can't get to the middle. So th there, are, there are ways in which scale, I think, is important. And we tend to associate uh, smaller scale operations with local. And especially here in the Northeast, I think this is a partly a Northeast thing because our, the scale of our agriculture, partly because of our geography and the top topography, farms are smaller here than they are in the Midwest where you can have, you know, 10,000 acre farm with no physical relief in the land. But, um, Scale and diversity are probably the two key elements that are going to be associated with sustainable farming systems. Diversity because of nutrient cycling and, and complementarities between um, various uh, species, both intentional and unintentional species on the, on the land. And um, it, so, so there is an element there. It's very hard to have a very diverse farm and have it very large. So, so there is an association between diversity and, and scale. Um, how far that can go? I mean, the Amish can do 120 acres is about what they can do with horses, and that tends to be sort of a good model for the kind of uh, scale that works um, at, at, at that level. Does it work to feed 17 million people with, like, millions of 120-acre farms, maybe it will, and that's going to have some implications. But um, as far as the sort of environmental impact of food systems is concerned, it's, it's a completely different paradigm from, as you said earlier, the, the way that science has been pushing, you know, sort of bigger is better and monocultures and making uh, mechanization has been very much in, in play with that. Um, but if we're going to figure out how to do this, and I, uh, one thing that I argue a lot is that we, you know, we've got organic and we've got um, some things that people are doing that we think of as sustainable, but I really feel like well, there are so many unanswered questions about how we're really going to make this work and really make it work in terms of producing enough food for everyone. It's, it's a big, big challenge that we have a lot more work to do. We have not figured out how to farm sustainably yet. Even the best biodynamic farmer you can identify, there's still problems with those farms that I think if we put some effort into it, we will figure out. Um, but we have, we have a lot of work to do to make that happen. So I would just argue that when you're purchasing at the farmer's market or when you're purchasing through somebody who's certified, you know, a, uh, an intermediary person, 
ask the questions, do a little homework, and find out what, if, if there are certain things that you value, be it on the social side, the economic side, or the environmental side, ask the questions that are important. Don't assume, just because it's locally grown, that, it's, that those people are going to be farming in the way that you really value. Brian? I mean, I, I would say, you know, that um, when we're thinking about, I would say there is good science uh, showing that there are ecological, social, nutritional, and other benefits to local food and regional food. There is good science supporting that with, you know, and I, now I'll give two disclaimers. Um, there's not a lot of it, uh, partly because we haven't been examining food systems from this perspective before. Um, there was much more of an evaluation of, you know, sort of the uh, efficiencies, uh, you know, economics and, and just pure agronomic, uh, you know, production standards. And the second disclaimer is that not all local food systems are created equal. I mean, there's some, you know, very good studies showing that you can deliver, grow and deliver local food very inefficiently, you know, in ways that will use a lot more fossil fuels and generate more pollution uh, than, than an 18-wheeler driving all the way from California. I do think that some of those examples uh, showing that local food is not energy efficient or, or not beneficial from an environmental perspective are a little bit unfair because um, if we change our diets so that we're, you know, we don't have a choice between asparagus from the Northeast and asparagus from California, if we're just eating in season and buying that asparagus from California is never an option, uh, then all of a sudden that comparison is entirely theoretical. So when people start eating in season and changing their diets and maybe even preserving more at home so they can extend their local growing season, it really changes the equation dramatically. And I will add on the nutritional perspective, uh, a few years ago I did a research project uh, looking at all the studies that were out there analyzing whether locally grown food was more nutritious, either because it was fresher or it wasn't losing nutrients in shipping and, and that sort of thing. And it's a very murky area, again, where there's not a ton of research and more needs to be done and, and more is being done. But, you know, here are some of the broad conclusions that you, you do see in the studies. Um, one, uh, there are certain nutrients that do degrade very quickly if the food's not stored properly or if it's being shipped uh, over long distances. So that's a clear advantage over of, of local food, assuming it's you know being stored well and gets to the consumer quickly. Um, old varieties of plants, from wheat to cauliflower to corn, um, had much higher levels of micronutrients, lots of trace nutrients that, that uh, have gotten neglected as we've bred for uh, crops that yield higher or have certain other production traits. So you're likely to find those older varieties being grown on a small scale on diversified farms that you, you buy at your farmer's market. And then the other last thing that I'll note, and this is again quite murky, but the nutritional value of your food is also affected in a major way by uh, the irrigation and fertilizing practices of that farm. So uh, a farm that's fertilizing heavily and irrigating heavily to really maximize production is going to tend to produce more watery plants with a lower concentration of certain nutrients. Again, um, then this could be done on a local basis. Plenty of local farmers might farm that way, um, but that, that uh, 
gives an advantage not so much to local growers, but to growers who are doing things with you know, more sophisticated fertilizer programs, like fertilizing with compost or organic fertilizers that break down more slowly, that are more complicated, and growing in, in the cycle with the seasons and, and natural water cycles, not irrigating heavily. Those tend to yield uh, plants that are more concentrated nutrient-wise. But again, this is kind of a new science, and there's many factors that go into what determines if your food is more nutritious. Do you have any thoughts about all this? Uh, just a couple, um, mm -hmm. but so well said by, by both Jennifer and, and Brian. One thing is, is that, you know, you, you talked about the micronutrients and things like that. It's just like, and, and that it's not necessarily about local, but it is about farming practices. And I, almost every year, uh, one of the things that I do in, is I'll go through the market well, I do this all the time. I mean, I go through and I go, well, who's got the best string beans today? And, um, you know, eat at seven different stands before I decide who I'm going to buy from. Because people are always asking me, you know, it's like, well, who the, who's, who, who's your favorite farmer? Who's the best farmer? And today, the new row of beans is one person, and my favorite farmer might have old beans, and their new crop hasn't come in yet, so I'm not buying them today. But I've side by side, you know, placed rutabagas or Japanese turnips and um, tasted side by side somebody that was a more industrial um, production where you know that there's irrigation and know that there's heavy uh, uh, use of fertilizer against a more slowly growing, um, probably organic producer. And you can taste the difference. I mean, there's no question. Hands down, you can taste the difference. And we do all kinds of things in the industrialized food supply that add water to gain weight, to sell the product at higher profit and lower price, and you get less. And the only person who's making out is the guy who's selling it, not the person who's eating it. Because, in fact, if you could measure at a meal how much taste I wanted, I had to eat more of the industrialized food to get the same amount of taste. And maybe that's why many people eat too much. So that if you ate foods that had more concentrated flavor, you would be sated sooner. I know, personal theory that Brian hasn't read the studies on yet. <laughs> the, uh, the, other, the other thing that I just sort of want to say about it is, is, is this isn't about hocus pocus um, or spiritualism. But first of all, the science isn't there yet because, number one, this government doesn't want to, or this whole system doesn't want to fund doing the studies that would produce the kind of inquiry that, that we're really interested in. So it's not being done, not being funded. But the other part of it is, is that some things are actually maybe still not measurable or unknowable. And that's not to say that I'm anti-science, because I'm not. It's taken us, you know, to all kinds of wonderful things, to create a microphone so that you can hear me without my working too hard. But there are things that are still not measurable, and um, that doesn't mean that we don't need them in our diet or that they don't add to the miracle of great taste. And anybody who's ever had a totally fabulous bottle of wine, and it's 100% Pinot Noir, and then there's another bottle that's right next to it that's 100% Pinot Noir. What's the difference? Well, I, I don't know. You know, it, it <laughs> is about the soil, but it's about all kinds of things that aren't necessarily measurable because it's 
this soil type versus that soil type and, and, and things like that. So I, I think that the science is important and we need to support it, but then there's also parts of it that it doesn't matter. We know. And we like the way it tastes. Yeah, I mean, I, we know, uh, you know, anecdotally and personally, and that's what might affect our buying decisions, but we should acknowledge that, you know, eating local or eating regionally is not going to solve all the problems in the food system. So, you know, food waste uh, in the form of packaging is emerging as a massive issue in mm -hmm. New York and around the country. Local food isn't, you know, it can also be culpable in that respect. It's not likely to carry as much food waste because you're buying it whole at the farmer's market or in bulk. Uh, there's there's going to be advantages there. But in the same respect, you know, if we have a public health crisis where people aren't eating well, should we invest in growing food organically so the nutrient level is higher in the food, or should we just be figuring out ways for people to eat more vegetables regardless of how they're grown? So you know, that I think that's also an interesting scientific question is where should we devote our energy? Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. A big thank you goes out to the South Street Seaport Museum and the 2012 River to River Festival for hosting our talk. For more information, visit us online at www.scienceandthecity.org. Or you can shoot us an email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Catch you next time.